Blog Talk Radio. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year over. And you won't just be gone. And so this is everybody. It's Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Records Rock and Roll Cookbook Series. And yes, it is almost Christmas, John. And faster than we can imagine, the year of 2018 is coming to a close. And so today, my co-host, Jude Sutherland Kessler of the John Lennon Series, and I thought we'd pause for a moment to look back at what we have done over the past 17 months since this program was born, and to answer John's query about what we've accomplished on She Said, She Said. Very sincerely, it's been a remarkable and exciting year and a half together, debating rock and roll topics such as The Beatles versus The Stones, or Help versus A Hard Day's Night, and we have more debates headed your way in 2019 for sure. That is so right. Hey, Lena. How are you? Hey there. Terrific. Well, Lena and I are definitely going to be having more of our little friendly discussions very soon. We're going to think up some good topics for you guys in 2019. But another thing mm-hmm. that we've tried to do this past, it's almost a year and a half. I can hardly believe that. We really tried to highlight on the show some of the most interesting, innovative, insightful guests in the music world, and we call these folks our I, hashtag, I candy guest. And in that vein, we were really, really thrilled and honored to interview remarkable individuals in the Beatles world, such as the head of Apple for the U.S., and author Ken Mansfield, the editor of Beatle Fan Magazine, Bill King, Our dear friend, author and Beatles music expert, Bruce Beiser. We love Bruce. He's been on numerous times. Um, Grammy Award nominee, Linda Chorney. If you didn't hear that show, you need to go back and hear that Mm -hmm. one in archives. Linda is remarkable. We had Mm -hmm. two of the incredibly respected journalists who toured with the Beatles in 1964 and then have gone on to become best-selling authors, Ivor Davis and Art Schreiber. And there have just been so many, many others who were really a pleasure to host on She Said, She Said. Absolutely. You are so right, dude. And coming up on Monday, 14 January at 4 p.m. Central Time, the tradition will continue. We're going to be hosting Allison Boron and Erica White, the supremely talented and very knowledgeable hosts of the popular podcast, B.C. The Beatles. And also, in the next few weeks, the one and only rock and roll detective himself, author Jim Birkenstadt, will be on hand to break down the newly released Esher demos for you as well. And if you are intrigued about those demos, you are going to love it. In fact... 
I must say we have some huge surprises planned for you in 2019, some really big shows. (laughs) 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 That is my Ed Sullivan (laughs) uh, voice. So stay tuned to our She Said, She Said Facebook page. And Jude and myself have Twitter feeds out there. So watch those with all the announcements we have coming up in 2019. We will be tweeting and we will be Facebooking all for you guys. And also coming up tonight after 7 p.m. Eastern Time, for the people who are listening from our Fest for Beatles fans family, and I know there are a lot of you out there, um, the Hicks, Dara Roberts, a lot of you who love the Fest for Beatles fans, there is a brand new Fest blog coming out tonight on thefest.com that will give you a fast and fun year in review of everything that we did in 2018 as a as a fest family and i think it'll bring back a lot of good memories and maybe a few chuckles so don't miss the end Mm -hmm. of the year blog at thefest.com but the year is not quite over yet and here on she said she said We intend to end it with a bang as we not only bring you music that you're going to listen to this afternoon from the newly engineered White Album, but we do it under the auspices of one of the single most revered music experts in America. That's absolutely right, Jude. Our guest today is the internationally known creator of Deconstructing the Beatles, a series of multimedia presentations about the composition and production techniques of the Beatles. He has presented his lectures to sold-out audiences at theaters nationwide, and he's spoken about the Beatles at colleges, universities, and corporations such as Pixar, Google, and Facebook. How exciting. His insights into the music of the Beatles can be found in the book, All the Songs, the story behind every Beatles release. And he also writes for Culture Sonar at culturesonar.com. So it goes without saying, although I'll definitely say it, (laughs) that it is truly an honor to introduce to you Mr. Scott Fryman and Scott I'm going to make sure you're there. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Well, thank you so much. It is wonderful to be on the podcast. Well, we are, we're thrilled to have you here. And since we only have, and guys, here's the deal. This is only a 30-minute show live. The show will cut off in about 20 minutes. But we will keep going with Scott until about 4.35, 4.40. So if you miss the last 10 minutes, don't despair Wait just a few minutes and then tune into the archive show. Fast forward to the point where you left off and you can pick up the final 10 minutes of the program. But since our time is limited, we are going to right now turn the mic over to Scott. He's going to take you on an incredible journey through four of the best songs on the white. But before we do that, Scott, just in case people don't hear the end of the program, Tell them how they can follow you on Facebook or wherever, and most importantly, how they can invite you to come speak at their university or club or whatever. Uh, Yes, I can be found at deconstructingthebeatles.com, all one word. Uh, I have a Facebook page called Deconstructing the Beatles, and that will give you links to where I'm appearing. I have films and theaters 
Uh, the latest one is Deconstructing Magical Mystery Tour. You can find out the latest times uh, that's going to be playing in a city near you. And there are also DVDs and streaming available of all the release films, including a songwriting course on the Beatles. And if you order that from culturesonar.com, or you can get to it from my website, deconstructingthebeatles.com, and you put in the code HOLIDAY2018, all capital letters, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y-2018, you will get a 10% discount on Ooh. anything you purchase from culturesonar.com. Great. <laughs> I am writing that down. Okay. All right, Scott. As the announcer on Live with the BBC so famously says... The next 20 minutes are in the hands of the gods and the lap of uh, Scott Fryman. So take it away, Scott. Take us song by song through the fabest four songs on the White Album. Well, Lane and Jude, you made this very hard for me because talking about four <laughs> songs from the White Album and picking what four songs to talk about is very, very tough. So I thought I would start with the first song the Beatles recorded for the White Album and end with the last song they recorded with two in between. And we're going to start with a little bit of background. Most of you, I'm sure, know that the Beatles went off to India, and when they came back, they had this treasure trove of songs that they had written there. And they went to George Harrison's house uh, and recorded what is now known as the Esher demos. And those Esher demos are kind of like a Beatles unplug session. And one of the first songs that John came back with was a song called Revolution. Now, there was a lot of revolution going on in 1968, and the Beatles had, uh, for many years, been told, stay out of politics. And, of course, John had always kind of crossed that line, first saying they're more popular than Jesus, we know about that, uh, then starting to talk about Vietnam. And uh, this was really John's way of getting something political onto a Beatles album. But what was interesting about his lyrics to Revolution is that he was really emphasizing the personal side and not the political side. Free your mind. Don't listen to leaders. Kind of, you know, uh, like uh, Dylan said, uh, you know, don't listen to leaders. Um, uh, watch your parking meters. Um, same thing with John. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, one leader is not any better than the next leader. Uh, you have to really listen to this stuff and figure out what they're saying and come to your own conclusions. And although there was a little bit of uncertainty about, you know, whether he was in or out with violence, he really was saying, look, we've got to, we've got to deal with ourselves here. We've got to make sure that we understand what's going on and not just uh, blazingly follow people into battle. And that's kind of my interpretation of what John was getting at with Revolution. And he wanted this very much to be the Beatles' next single. Uh, but they started it out in this very kind of bluesy shuffle, uh, from the very first demos, uh, the Easter demos, through to the first 18 takes of the song in the studio. It was kind of shuffling along very nice, and all the Beatles were there having a good time. And then on May 30th, 1968, uh, they're in there, they're on take 18, and Yoko is there, John's new love, and she's brought in some tapes that John and Yoko have been making at home. And as the song Revolution is going into the chorus, uh, the ending of the song, the outro, uh, all right, all right, all right, uh, the Beatles start singing different things in the background. John starts to scream. Yoko starts to play some of these crazy tapes. <laughs> and before it's all done, they've got a 10-minute song called Revolution. <laughs> now, John 
loved this, of course, and he thought it would be crazy for the Beatles to release it. And George Martin and the other three Beatles said, John, we're not, we're not releasing a 10-minute version of Revolution with all this craziness for the last seven minutes. And so John kind of said, look, I'll take the part that I thought was kind of fun, the last seven minutes, and I'm going to work with that. And that becomes Revolution 9. Uh, they worked together, John, Yoko, George Harrison, on putting together tape loops, adding some additional spoken word and some sound effects, some excerpts from classical compositions, even things like the ending chord of A Day in the Life is in there. And they put together this collage, uh, this kind of avant-garde piece, and that's Revolution 9. So the first three minutes of the song are still that bluesy shuffle, and they work on that for a while, but they feel it's too slow to release as a single. And so they decide to do a faster, more distorted, crunchy version of Revolution for the single. One of the things that's been really interesting for me listening to the new release of the White Album and kind of approaching it with, with fresh ears, even though we've all heard these songs so many times, you realize what a heavy album this is. Helter Skelter, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. You know, these songs are heavy. And that single of Revolution, not only do you have John uh, pretty much shouting the, the lyrics to that song, but they plug their guitars directly into the console. Uh, essentially, they overloaded the console to get a very grungy guitar sound. That was pretty unusual. This was, you know, there wasn't heavy metal out there. And here the Beatles are really pushing this distortion uh, to, to the limit, you know, in, in 68. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then what they did is they, they had just come back, Paul, George, and Ringo, had just come back from California, working with a guy named Jackie Lomax. And Jackie had a session musician playing some keyboards there, a guy by the name of Nicky Hopkins. Nicky Hopkins is one of the most famous session musicians. He played with the Stones and the Kinks and, you know, all these British bands. Um, and one of the first things he did was he played the keyboards on the single version of Revolution. And so we ended up with three versions of the song, the Revolution 1, kind of the bluesy shuffle version, which starts side four of the White Album, Revolution 9, this crazy, interestingly uh, put-together collage that John, Yoko, and George worked on, and then the single version of the song, this heavy, grungy version of the song, which was the flip side of the Hey Jude single. So I thought we can take a quick listen now to Revolution from the White Album. I think
That is but, definitely but a, a shuffle, one. Scott. Yes, <laughs> definitely a shuffle. And you can tell that they went back and they put some of that heavy guitar even on this Revolution 1 version. Uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. there in the first 18 takes when they did some overdubs. They put some, some of that grungy guitar on there. But it just wasn't enough for the Beatles. They really felt they needed a faster version for the single. And that's why we have the, the single version of, of Revolution. Sure. Um, it was one heck of a way to kick off the White Album, though. I mean, you can imagine George Martin, who had been coming off of Revolver and Pepper and Mystery Tour, and thinking, all right, what kind of fun stuff are we going to do in the studio for this project? And they come in and they basically, take, the Beatles kind of take charge of the studio. They, in, in a lot of ways, push George Martin to the side, and they just take control. And Martin wasn't used to these, uh, these crazy avant-garde things, these grungy guitars and so forth. This was really the, 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 the fox taking over the head house in some ways. And, uh, and that's why George Martin, you know, didn't have a great time during the White Album, because the Beatles were really running the show at this point. Right. Um, so, so one of the other songs, which I happen to think is a highlight of the White Album, is uh, George Harrison's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Uh, you know, beautiful. Uh, it's a, just such a beautiful song. And when you hear his original demos of the song, uh, they are just gorgeous. He, he was trying to get his songs onto the albums. He was writing more and more. And with John and Paul writing so much, he was constantly fighting to get his songs on, trying to get their attention to even work on the songs. And mm-hmm. he worked on While My Guitar Gently Weeps for quite a bit, starting out just with him solo and then trying different approaches. Um, he's not in a great place during the White Album. He's frustrated with the Beatles. They didn't leave India in the best of circumstances. And he's feeling a lot of pressure and a lot of blame from the other Beatles. And you hear that in songs like Not Guilty. And even in the verse from While My Guitar Gently Weeps that was cut, uh, where he sings, uh, I look at, at the, in the wings the play you are staging, and I'm sitting here doing nothing but aging, uh, kind of, him saying, look, I'm kind of frustrated here. Um, And and this carries through as he puts While While My Guitar Gently Weeps together. He originally thinks um, he's going to add some backwards guitar because it sounds like uh, guitars weeping. And he's just having trouble getting the attention of the other Beatles. He's not liking the sound of it. For whatever reason, he decides to enlist his friend, Eric Clapton, to come on in. And even though Eric Clapton was uncredited, um, he was the star uh, of that moment because the other Beatles, especially John and Paul, loved Eric. So they were on their best behavior when he came in. And, you know, George bringing in this guitar god to play on the song, everyone was really uh, having a great time putting it together. And you get one of the most famous guitar solos ever played. Uh, (laughs) Wonderful how uh, they did that. You know, Eric Clapton was coming out of Cream, which was – just on the verge of splitting up. And to play on a Beatles album was a really big deal. He didn't want to do it at first because Mm -hmm. they had never brought in another guitarist. But Harrison convinced him. Yeah, John and Paul convinced him, and and he did it. And, of course, we had that classic guitar part. So why don't we listen to a little of While My Guitar Gently Weeps.
thing. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's great. I mean, George George's four songs on that album, on the White Album, everyone has their favorites, of course. But you know, while my guitar gently weeps certainly is is just a wonderful song, and sets him mm-hmm. up, I think, for writing something. And here comes the sign on Abbey Road, which were you know his his mm-hmm. classics, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the uh, the next song I'm going to talk about briefly is Your Blues. Uh, you know, a lot of people have written about your blues as John Lennon trying to do a blues parody. But, you know, I don't really think that's the case. And, and Jude, I don't think you think that's the case. No, not at all. I mean, this is, this is the real deal here. He, I mean, he even says that when he wrote it, he was in a deep depression. Quote, unquote, I was in murder. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So. And, uh, I mean, it, it's a it's. You know, certainly as a kid listening to these lyrics about the eagle picking my eye and feeling suicidal, uh, this is a guy who's, who's pretty, pretty down, at least when he yeah. writes this song. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's fun about your blues is they had come up with the idea of recording the song in a closet, essentially, next to the control room. There was this little room called Room 2A, which is where they would keep the tape recorders and, and other equipment. And they got the idea to cram the entire band in there, including Ringo and his drum kit, into this little tiny room. And they played away, and John did a, what's called a scratch vocal. He just sang without a microphone, and it kind of leaked into the other mics. And then he went and did a proper vocal. And if you yeah. listen to the song, at the very, very end... You hear the band playing, and you hear this kind of ghost voice of John. That's John's ghost, um, ghost vocal. That's, that's his scratch vocal that he's doing in that room 2A. And that was like, you know, people say the White Album was, there was all this tension and so forth. That was certainly one time where they were having a great time. You know, Ringo yeah. says it was one of the highlights for him, uh, yeah. all cramming in this room and just <laughs> thrashing out this blues. Um, and, and one last thing I'll mention about, well, actually, you know what, let's listen to a little bit, and then I'm going to point out one last thing about your blues. Can we listen to a little of your blues? Here we go. John always loved to throw in these additional bars and beats in his songs. It's all over a lot of his, certainly post-Sgt. Pepper output. And here is a traditional, what's called a 12-bar blues. There's a certain pattern for, the, for blues songs. But John can't let that alone. So he throws in this part where it goes... That little bit there before he comes back to um, the beginning of the song, the beginning of the pattern. 
And those little tricks that mm. the John and Paul and even George used in their songwriting to create a little bit of tension before you kind of come back to something which everyone's waiting for really makes songs great. And even in a song like Your Blues, which many people say is a blues song, there's this little trick in there which I think makes it really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at your write-up on Your Blues in your book, All the Songs, uh, the story behind every Beatles release, and I love that you included this quote from John. I was writing the most miserable songs on earth when he's writing the White Album, in your blues, when I wrote, I'm so lonely, I want to die. I wasn't kidding. That's how I felt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, this was written in India uh, right as he is going to be getting out of his marriage with Cynthia and discovering, you know, a new relationship with Yoko. Like, he knew Yoko when he went to India, but he was thinking that, you know, here's this this woman who is intelligent and artistic and who he just kind of bonded with, and he's in India with Cynthia, who he just felt was the past for him. He felt like they were on different wavelengths. And, again, Jude, you you, you know much more about, about this, but clearly John makes a huge transition when the White Album sessions start and Yoko is now part of his life. Uh, yeah. it's, it's almost like he has a new lease on life. And I think Your Blues was written at that part right before where he's saying, you know, I'm just miserable. Yeah. He was very, very, very miserable and very guilty because what people forget is he'd been with Cynthia for 10 years since May of 1958 and married for six. And mm-hmm. this was no easy thing to walk away. Uh, it was a very difficult time. Yep, 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 absolutely. And, of course, the whole reaction of the other Beatles and the staff at Abbey Road to this strange Japanese woman who John just kind of brings in and makes part of the recording sessions from the beginning, from Revolution, uh, and trying to figure out, is this kind of a fad of John's? Is this, like, his latest thing? Or is this, like, really serious? They all Mm -hmm. knew Cynthia. You know, so there was a lot of that kind of questioning what is John doing? Is this a passing phase, or is this really something, something new? And right. I think that's something which kind of filters through the White Album sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of leads me to the last song that I'm going to discuss, which is the last song they recorded for the White Album. It's John's song, Julia, which is just beautiful. It um, was recorded on October 13th, and it's just John and a guitar. Uh, at one point, Paul even tries out some harmonies, and they play with a capo on the guitar. They change it to, uh, to the key of D to get a different sound. But ultimately, it's just John sitting there and playing and singing the song. And what's really interesting about the lyrics of Julia is the combination of, his, uh, of the song that's a tribute to his mother, and it's also a tribute to Yoko. His mother, Julia, died when he was very young, just as she had come back into his life. And again, you can read about all of that in in Jude's wonderful, wonderful books. But this was a traumatic experience for John. And uh, then there's the ocean child. And Yoko's name translated from Japanese means ocean child. So here he is writing about his mother, this woman who he loved and lost, and now his new love, who he is going to be involved with for the rest of his life. 
And so it's also kind of a transition song linking his mother to the woman who he would call mother, oftentimes Yoko. Mm. Um, it's also John's only song as a Beatle where it's just him. And uh, Paul has lots of songs like Blackbird where it's, it's Paul on a guitar and so forth, but, but John didn't do that with the Beatles. And he's picked up this guitar pattern in India that Donovan has taught him, this finger-picking. And he uses it in Julia, and it's absolutely beautiful. You can hear him on some of the outtakes that have just been released, talking to George Martin and trying, you know, saying this pattern is really hard to play and sing at the same time. But, of course, he ends up nailing it. Yeah. So why don't we yeah. listen to a little bit of, uh, of Julia? But I say it just to reach you, Julia. 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 Ocean child calls me. So I sing the song of was how the White Album sessions ended, with John in the studio by himself and a guitar, playing in front of George Martin, Paul in the control room watching, and the sessions were, were over. Um, yeah. And, of course, putting this album together was this marathon session of trying to figure out how do you take all of this music re recorded, including some songs which didn't make it on the album, and sequence them. And I was talking earlier about how it's a heavy album, but then you have these songs like Julia and Blackbird and Long, 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 these beautiful kind of haunting songs. You have the music hall of Honey Pie. You have Revolution 9, this avant-garde thing. You have Country with Rocky Raccoon and, and Don't Pass Me By. You know, it's such a cool album because every song takes you into this different place. And uh, I wish we could talk about all the songs, but uh, I think that kind of wraps up what, what I can do today. Um, I, I am happy to talk a little bit more about uh, sort of some of the other things going on, but uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to Jude and, and, uh, and Lena, and, and uh, you're, you can absolutely ask me some questions for the last couple of minutes. Well, I have one question for you, and I, have, I found this recently, and I don't know if you've ever seen this before or not, but... One of the one of the books that I'm doing research on recently said that the day before Eric Clapton came with George into the studio to do the real recording of the solo on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, that John actually played it and did what they called, quote-unquote, a respectable job. And, of course, it was wiped the next day, and, and uh, the, the real solo was inserted. Have you seen that anywhere in your research? I, I had not. It's, a, it's, a, it's really interesting. Uh, I know that they were all frustrated, you know, George trying to do his backward solo, and maybe John said, you know, let me have a try at that. Um, but uh, very, very interesting, um, uh, if, if that's true, because uh, uh, it would have been wonderful to hear that and, and see how it compared to what Eric played. 
well, I'm sure there's, <laughs> you know, no comparison because he's, he's certainly not a lead guitarist. But um, I just found that people are always asking, you know, did John contribute to, to any of George's songs other than mm-hmm. the tape loops on Piggies? If so, if this is true, and I'm going to try to find out, but if it is true, then that means he very definitely did. He wasn't intentionally sliding George or anything like that. Yeah, and there are, there are definitely times where John is in the room, perhaps. But for a large part of these sessions, he's, he's just totally hell-bent on his own songs. Uh, he's not even on Paul's songs all the time. And he'd come off of a period of time where he was kind of running dry a little bit, and Paul was definitely running the show. And now he's got this burst of activity from India, now from with, with, uh, being with Yoko, and he's he just totally you know, focused on getting his stuff done. So I'm not sure how much of it is slighting George versus mm-hmm. just, hey, I want to get my stuff done. You know what I mean? Right, right, exactly right, which is, of course, what George has been saying all along. You know, you guys, you're ignoring me. You're doing your own thing. But Elaine and I have been furiously taking notes and, and texting mm-hmm. great lines that you've said back and forth to each other. I love everything you said. Every time I've ever heard you, you always leave audiences so much more knowledgeable than they were before. And I hope people will take advantage of inviting you to come speak to their groups. I, I know people might not have jotted down before your website or your information. So tell them one more time, Scott, how they can get in touch with you. Well, well, thanks again, uh, Jude and Lena, and, and thanks again for having me on the show. Um, you can find everything you need to know about me at deconstructingthebeatles.com. Uh, I also post on my Facebook page, Deconstructing the Beatles. Uh, there are DVDs for sale. There are also lots of short little videos that you can watch. And if you purchase a DVD or streaming of any of the seven uh, DVDs that are out right now, um, and you use the code HOLIDAY2018, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y 2018, uh, when you check out, if you use that code, you will get a discount on your purchase for, a, for the holiday season. And that's only good until December 24th, so do it quickly. That is excellent. That would be a fabulous holiday gift uh, for your friends and family this year. I am going to check into doing that as well. Scott, thank you very much for such an insightful look at the White Album at 50 years old. Uh, wish you ha- we had time to go through all of the songs, but this has been an excellent glimpse at what you do on a grand scale and in your full-length presentations. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Well, it was a pleasure, and thanks again for having me. Well, there we go, guys. Another great show, another great guest. And to all of you out there, another great audience. We, Lane and I are so appreciative of everyone who has gotten behind this show in the last 17 months. And our mm-hmm. regular listeners, Dwayne Andrea and Cameron Hicks, hugs to you. Dara Roberts, we appreciate you always being there for us. Terry Whitney, Randy and Ruthie Fenwick. So many others out there who have been very sweet to support us and to spread the word about She Said, She Said. And to all of you, a very Merry Christmas or a blessed Hanukkah. I hope that you have the peace of heart that brings you through this lovely season and a strong renewal of faith at this time. And I second that emotion. Hugs to all of you. And may you have food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. Ta-ra and shine on.
So this is Christmas And what have you done 